What's up, everybody? We have another episode of Watch If You Dare coming to you. This week, Daywan and I are going to be discussing Kill List from 2011. A movie I did not know anything about until you told me about it. And it just might be the darkest movie we've watched out of the handful of movies we've seen so far. I don't Possibly. Know. We'll talk about that later. Yeah, this is Aaron Mansfield coming at you this week. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Um, so we're going to be discussing Kill List in a moment. Um, in the meantime, Derek, what have you indulged in recently? Uh, like usual, still, I don't think I ever will get caught up on my comics because I buy too many of them. So, of course, I'm doing that. Uh, last night, actually, right before uh, this recording... I started Resident Evil 2 the remake and it is pretty fucking good so far. I'm about two hours into it. I never found zombies particularly that scary, but this game does a pretty great job of making them a terrifying force to deal with, especially after the oversaturation that we got probably over the last decade of zombies, which I blame Walking Dead for a lot of that. But yeah, Resident Evil was the OG zombie terrifying game, and the second game is was one of my favorite games, probably my favorite out of the series next to maybe Resident Evil 4, and this game so far has done a great job of uh, remaking it. Other than that, um, I've been also reading some books. I finally finished actually a horror-related title from the Welcome to Night Vale podcast team. They put out a couple books that they've written. This one was their second called It Devours. I didn't know that they actually had books. I thought it was just the podcast. Yeah, they actually have two books that are fiction um, that are kind of just like they focus on side characters from the podcast. Okay, so they are they are tied into the podcast. Yeah, in a way. They're their own standalone stories in Night Vale, so you don't necessarily need to read them to like get the whole story of the podcast and vice versa. But it is better to know the podcast and kind of what Night Vale is all about before reading the books. Otherwise, you're kind of going to be confused and put off by like sort of the goofiness of, of the book. Because the book really is, it really does just feel like the podcast in every way, like the way it's written. Yeah. And then they have actually, Night Vale has two other books, which are literally just the transcripts of their first 50 episodes along with like commentary on uh, in between and all that but the two fiction books are the first one's just called Welcome to Night Vale a novel and then the second one is called It Devours and I just finished It Devours it was pretty good um not not the i don't think these books are particularly that scary but they are horror related horror adjacent some people would classify them as straight up horror check that out and also check out the podcast welcome to night Vale. it is kind of a fun podcast to listen to so that's kind of all i got what about you so real quick taking a step back before we go further i've probably mentioned this on the podcast before but i have never been like a huge video game person i didn't grow up with video games it was literally when I was in college that I like bought a secondhand video game console. And even now, I'm not a huge video game player. I'm lucky if I play like maybe two to four games a year. And I usually pick more episodic, story-driven stuff. I don't play sports games. I don't play shooters. Um, I like open-world RPG kind of things. I like things that are very story-driven like Mass Effect or Arkham. I have never played a Resident Evil game. Really? I have seven I have not played it yet. I have always heard that, you know, people really like them. I remember, like, watching all, all of you guys playing 4 when we were in college. Just because I remember everybody joking about, like, Chainsaw Bitch and all the weird, like, different color marijuana leaves that you pick up that are, like, healing herbs. 
and Heather has definitely played some of those games, but I've I've never played a single one. So I'm I'm wondering if I should go ahead and pick up two, even though I'm not necessarily going to have time to play it anytime soon. I wonder if they're going to have DLC and stuff, and I should maybe wait for like a Game of the Year or Gold Edition to come out, or if like it's just a straight remaster and that's it, so they're not adding anything later. So they have announced that there is DLC coming out in February and granted at the time that this recording actually gets released as an episode it might already way be out but the DLC is free so okay it's it's kind of up to you I don't know if they're going to do any DLC after that that'll be paid for but if it's a true remaster I mean the full story of the original game is all there so any of this DLC that they're releasing is just kind of like extra mini games and side stories that weren't necessarily in the first the original PS1 version Seven is very different from the rest of the series in that it is first person. It is really good. It's a really good horror game. Probably the scariest out of all the Resident Evil games, I would argue. Very Texas Chainsaw Massacre-esque. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah, I think you would really enjoy... I, I think you're going to enjoy Resident Evil 7 quite a lot. I still think you should listen. Uh, uh, still play Alien Isolation, too. Um, yeah. But uh, I do think you should eventually check out Resident Evil 2, the remake. But you could probably wait a while if you have all these other games that, are, uh, that you need to go knock out. Like, even Spider-Man. I know you haven't even started that either, so... Yeah, I... I got a backlog, but it's partly just because of my work situation right now. I don't have a whole lot of time, so hopefully. So as far as stuff that I've been into lately, I've checked out a couple of new movies. I rented The Clove Hitch Killer, and my mom and I watched it. My mother is definitely still into, like, true crime, serial killer, detective kind of stuff. It still trips me up to this day that when we watched Mulholland Drive in college, your mom just randomly came by the house and was like, shit, I'll watch it with y'all, why not? And she watched Mulholland Drive with us. That was great. So, yeah, and the whole time she was just like, yeah, that was pretty good. Like, I think I get it. But I, I expose her to movies like that every once in a while just to kind of, like, get a reaction from her because she does a lot of work on her computers um she does music composition stuff so and arrangements but she's constantly watching shit on her laptop and only half paying attention she'll have subtitles on but she's only half paying attention because she's literally like typing out music on her keyboard and she watches things three or four times because she doesn't like fully soak them in right and she watches things that are like fairly easy just to kind of pass through your head while you're doing other work So I like to occasionally just push her into the deep end of some really experiential movie. And recently we did watch Dogtooth, which is Yorgos Lanthimos' big breakout movie when he was still in Greece. Um, I believe it was nominated for Best Foreign Film the year that it came out at the Oscars. But that movie is ridiculous. And it is full of just really frank sexual stuff and lots of really short but shocking violence and i'm not going to explain the plot of that movie at all beyond it is three siblings who are in their 20s who are all still living at home with their parents on kind of this closed off compound essentially and you kind of find out that they have been there their whole lives and they're they've been learning everything wrong and that's all i'll say but that movie is hilarious and she was just shocked 
and just kind of mind blasted by that movie. And so she just railed and railed afterward, like, oh, this is the last time I'm letting you, like, trick me into one of these movies. And, you know, all you want to show me now is weird stuff. And I was like, yeah, because I need to get, like, some kind of reaction out of you beyond, like, yeah, that's pretty good. Huh? But anyway, we, we kind of toned it down this time. I say toned it down. We watched The Clovich Killer, <laughs> which was uh, very much based around the BTK killings. Very, very, very much so. Like, there's visually a lot of things that are exactly the BTK killer. But this movie went to, like, Fantastic Fest and a bunch of other places this past year, and it's just now coming out. It's directed by Duncan Skiles and actually stars Dylan McDermott. The movie centers around this teenage boy who lives in a town where there were a string of killings a decade ago, and he thinks that his dad might be the killer. And he kind of starts to put two and two together, and his dad is very clean-cut, Boy Scout leader, they go to church, Middle America kind of thing, and he starts to slowly find bits and pieces of things that make him think that his dad's this killer. It's really solid. It's very, very dark, procedural, but in a very relatable real-world kind of suburban way. Dylan McDermott's fantastic in it. What I found really interesting as I was watching the movie, there is a tonal shift, and there's a perspective shift in that movie that I was really not prepared for, and it kind of throws everything on its head, but it was very, very solid. And like I said, it's very much... BTK in a nutshell as far as what kind of killer this is so that was a very interesting and enjoyable rent beyond that Suspiria the Luca Guadagnino remake finally came out today it did not come anywhere near our part of the country and I was dying to see it because I love the original so much I know it's very divisive. People either seem to love it or they're just kind of maybe lukewarm on it and maybe need like another couple of viewings to see if it really clicks with them. The only person that I personally know who has seen it so far is our friend Meryl because they live in New York. So they were able to see it and she was kind of lukewarm on it because, you know, she had never seen the original so she didn't quite know what to expect. But she also said that it's the same reaction everybody has. It's very long. It's super, super long. It's like two hours and 45 minutes. And it's kind of muddy in its messaging. So I'm I'm excited to watch it. I literally have my Blu-ray sitting in the living room right now. And I'm going to watch it the next night or two. I also watched the first few episodes of the new season of True Detective. Which I really, really liked the first season. Until it got to the episode. I think it was episode number six where you find out what the beef is between Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. And I guess, spoiler alert, it's exactly what you think it's going to be, which was really disappointing. And I don't like the way that they kind of wrote all of it in there. And I don't think that that show in that first season really fully recovers from that episode low. But I really like the first season otherwise. Season two is a fucking mess. And I have a lot of reasons why, you know, I feel that show like could have been better could have been done differently did not like season two i don't think a lot of people like season two it had a lot to live up to obviously but for the cast that season two had there's no reason why that couldn't have been better season three what's different is i think nick pizzolato this season has somebody looking over his shoulder a little bit to maybe help guide the story some because jeremy salnier the director and writer of blue ruin and green room he is kind of like the executive producer of this season and he directs the first two episodes 
Um, Mahershala Ali is the lead, and he's a detective playing himself in three different timelines. So it's current day, he's very old, they're filming a documentary about the big case that he was involved in, and then it flashes all the way back to 1980 when the case was actually happening, when he was a young detective. And then there's kind of a middle timeline set in like 1990 where a lot of the case is kind of being called into question and like new evidence is coming out. So it's interesting seeing him play this character in three different timelines and he's so good Mahershala Ali is like one of those true acting gems that we have because he is a character actor who is now being given leading man roles and so he's fucking fantastic that said I really have a feeling from what I've seen so far the storyline is just kind of doing West Memphis 3 some kids disappear there's maybe some hooky dooky like there are these outcast kids who are into metal and I think that's kind of where this is going so yeah that sounds very West Memphis 3 yeah so I'm 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 hoping it goes beyond that a little bit because I really would like to like this season but we'll see so yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much all I've been into. Just I've had time to watch some movies and that's kind of about it again. No video games, comics, um kind of just reading the same stuff I've been reading. I dove back into Hellboy like I mentioned last time. Um so I'm just kind of catching up on some of the side stuff that I haven't read. Right before I started sat down to play Resident Evil, I did read some comics and I finished Cold Spots, the last issue of the mini series. Okay. I have to finish it. Pretty good. I am curious to see if Colin Bunn returns to this this world. I, I think he has done it a couple times with other miniseries of his where he'll do like five issues, it ends, and then he'll do like another story arc either with different characters or later on down the road with a side character or something. Yeah, but set in the same story. Yeah, yeah. set in the same story. So I would be curious to see if they return to this because I, I wouldn't mind. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see what he does next. I would really like to see maybe more stuff set in the world of Harrow County. I know, me too. <laughs> but I'm so glad that that story did wrap up and it's definitively, like, done. Yeah. Speaking of which, I did get that for Christmas. I got the hardbound, nice volume one that's like the first, I think, maybe eight issues kind of all put together. And it's super gorgeous. It's oversized and it's large and the artwork is gorgeous in it. So yeah, that's definitely a horror comic that everyone should check out. All right, well, um, as far as, like, an icebreaker goes before we start talking about this movie. So this movie deals a lot with family dynamics and kind of a, a family that's kind of in the middle of some issues. So let's kind of talk about that for a second. Let's, let's get kind of raw. What is probably, like, your biggest fear right now in regards to your family situation. Just anything that is constantly, like, in the back of your head or something that's, like, immediately there, but what's a family-related thing that is, like, an inherent fear that you have right now? Dealing with Alzheimer's, whether it's myself or even just watching my parents grow old yeah, and kind of enter the twilight of their lives, it terrifies me that maybe one day, like sooner or later, one or both of them or any of my other siblings would get Alzheimer's and just kind of forget who they are. In a selfish way, that terrifies me because honestly, I've always thought with people with Alzheimer's and again, I can't really speak to it, but like once you're full blown kind of gone, you're not really aware of 
what's happening to yourself at, at a certain point, or at least as far as I know of. Yeah. I always felt more guilt or just negative feelings or just upset for the people that have to deal with it. And it's really, and it's one of those things that's, it's nobody's fault either. It's, it's just kind of one of those, it, it's a disease that just kind of happens. It's still really not that well understood. It's, it's starting to be studied more and humans are starting to figure out more about it. But still, at the end of the day, it's kind of an unpredictable disease and it could happen randomly and there's really not much else you can do about it. So I know it's a weird existential fear, but that's kind of a fear with my own family that I, I'm scared of just watching one or both my parents, especially like just start forgetting their yeah. own lives like that's 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 a really dark thought of mine what about you my family has some health related stuff here and there but nothing that's necessarily like that for me i think and this is kind of what made me like think about it rewatching this movie i think for me the biggest fear that i have at least right now and this is definitely more of a selfish fear than what you mentioned but just my family not believing in me and my family just thinking that I'm kind of a scrub and a failure. I definitely like went to school for something that I was passionate about, did not fully pursue it once I got out, and kind of fell into decent job where I was able to provide for myself and my now wife. I'm happy with it, I'm enjoying it, but... It's not necessarily what I went to school for, and I've always kind of had that in the back of my head that, like, my family is either going to be resentful of me for not pursuing that, or they're going to just think I'm a failure. So just that, like, nagging anxiety has always been in my head that I have to do as much as I can to, like, live up to expectations and prove that, you know, I can make it, essentially, and that I'm doing what I can to provide for my family. So it's very similar to what this movie deals with. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because I'd be a liar if I said that there wasn't any point in my life where I had that same fear because I definitely did, especially in college. Oh, yeah. Well, everybody goes through that, you know, to varying degrees. I'm just, I'm kind of really heavily in that right now. Yeah, it's weird. As I've gotten older, I've worried less about what my parents or my family think of me. And I'm now more worried about like what my friends think of me. I've gone through stages in my life where I felt closer to friends rather than family. It's really no knock on my family and no knock against my friends either. It's just kind of how I was. Like I was, I was, I'm the youngest of three and I'm younger by like six or seven years. So I practically wasn't only child for a little while like especially in high school I wasn't particularly close with either of my sisters when I was a shithead teenager and they were in college or just out of college so I really just kind of either was with my parents or with my friends and yeah you know you go through that stage in life as a teenager where you're just like ah fuck you mom and dad so like there was there was yeah several years where I just like it was my friends and that was my life and that was all it was about it's weird because now I've re-entered kind of that stage but not in a rebellious way just more in a um it's hard to describe like I'm not saying I'm growing apart from my family because I'm not but I'm just more concerned about my friends opinions than my family's maybe because I know what I've done and I feel proud of what I've accomplished and a lot of the goals that I set up in my own head that were maybe based in my family's thoughts of me I feel like I have accomplished and so any any disappointment they may or may not have with me I honestly wouldn't bother me at this point. I'm I'm just yeah, it's so it's more uh it's more friends oriented for me now at this point. Yeah. It's hard to describe. Yeah, I kinda know what you mean. At this point, 
you know, we we moved earlier this year and we don't know anybody up in this area. So I'm doing my best to try to keep in contact with all of our college group. But otherwise, I'm in a spot right now where I'm having to lean on family a little bit more as we're kind of getting, you know, established in this new house, in this new place. So but whether it's Heather's family or my family, um, just having to kind of lean on everybody a little bit more. So I'm, I'm kind of flip-flopped and I'm in the opposite spot now. But yeah, I definitely know what you mean. Well, yeah, and that, that's a uh, that's a really good point too because when you're moving away and you're all over across the country, it really for a lot of people it's hard to keep in contact with people that aren't family, and so yeah, I don't want to do that. I don't want friendships to kind of just drift away like that. So yep, yeah, totally know what you mean there. All right, well, let's go ahead and talk about Kill List from 2011. <laughs> bad people who should suffer. film is directed by Ben Wheatley, who did Sightseers and A Field in England, High Rise, Free Fire. Apparently he's also tied to a remake of Rebecca, so that's interesting. Amy Jump co-wrote most of his movies, um, and so she co-wrote this one with him. My first exposure to Ben Wheatley was through Sightseers. Heather and I watched that when it was on Netflix a few years ago, because now it's almost unavailable. Um, There's not been like a U.S. release of it physically. So unless you basically go into some digital platform and buy it, it's almost impossible to find. But that movie is hilarious, and I have never laughed so hard at the ending of a movie. I was dying. I was cackling at the end of this movie. It's a British guy and his girlfriend who decided to, like, take a vacation together across the English countryside and just go caravanning. And she's kind of maybe on the spectrum a little bit. She lives with her mom still. Her mom is very overprotective of her. And she's very suspicious of this new boyfriend. And you kind of have a feeling that it's just the mom being overprotective. But as they start their trip, you find out, oh, the way that he blows off steam is that he takes this little trip every year and just goes murdering people across the English countryside. And that's like (laughs) how he de-stresses. And it's very much played as kind of horror comedy. So after that movie, I was kind of hooked and I wanted to see what else he would do. I'll, I'll say Ben Wheatley's kind of a mixed bag as far as movies are concerned. Like there's lots of things I like about his movies, but they don't always connect with me. I think this movie that we're talking about today is... Probably my favorite of his movies, all told. And this is the first movie that kind of broke him out, I believe. The whole movie was exclusively written for the leads. So this was not like an original concept that they kind of evolved and then cast from there. They actually wrote this with these people in mind in the roles. So I find that interesting because that's completely the opposite of how you normally make a movie. A lot of the dialogue was improvised as well too so they had like a very basic script with basic dialogue 
And apparently they would like film one pass using that script and then film another pass with them just kind of riffing and improving. So that's why that movie, it has a very naturalist feel to the dialogue of the conversations and especially a lot of their colloquialisms, which I don't know about you, but I had a little bit of a hard time with the accents when I first watched this movie. There were a couple scenes where I rewatched them and put closed caption on just so I could read the subtitles. Yeah, there were a couple moments where I was like, wait, what were they saying there? Yeah, they're very mumbly and they use a lot of Brit slang that you don't quite pick up on because your ears aren't used to hearing it. But I like that, you know, they kind of just let them improv because there are hints of little story bits and elements and there's inferred backstory about the characters that you can tell the actors and actresses just kind of made up that gives this movie a lot of interesting depth, even though it's ambiguous and you're not like 100% sure of all the detail. Like, you know there's more going on, but they never just spoon feed it to you and I really appreciate that. I I did start using, oi! took the piss like after watching this for a little bit but uh but yeah there there were those kind of uh, colloquialisms that are throughout that movie which actually honestly like if you watch it you can still follow along like there's no yeah. you're only really missing like little small like character moments if you're not necessarily understanding what they're saying or what the phrase means but otherwise it doesn't hamper the story in any way yeah ben wheatley has said that the original concept for this movie was kind of a cross between Git Carter with uh, Michael Caine and Lovecraft, which that totally like makes sense ultimately knowing where this movie goes. Yeah. <laughs> but this this movie is definitely like a great use of some nightmare logic. Like it's it's a very basic premise that suddenly becomes like really absurd in moments. You know, you have like those weird dream logic kind of moments where something just seems totally normal like when you're in that dream state and then when you wake up you realize like that made no fucking sense. Heather and I had those kind of moments where we talk about our dreams every once in a while if we have like something bananas that happened. And recently I had a dream about a boy, maybe like 10, and he was ziplining from New York City across the country onto an island in like the California coast where there was like a music festival happening. And it was like something where he was like ziplining the whole time and the rest of the country was like watching him on news broadcasts like, is he going to make it? Is he going to make it? And then finally he like zip lines and like lands on the island and you know, the middle of like all these like college age party kids who were there for this music festival and the whole nation just erupts and you see like the thing where, you know, you're cutting to all these different bars and salons and restaurants and just places across the country where they're watching the news broadcast and everybody's cheering and just screaming. This little kid's just like, yeah, I did it. That makes no fucking sense. That right? is that is fucking adorable. <laughs> but that was like the best dream that I've had in a long time and none of it made any sense. But yeah, this movie is totally just that where totally normal situation is happening and then all of a sudden like something's off and you don't know why and then like it just kind of keeps going and it doesn't really like dwell on those details yeah the difference between kill list and that dream of yours is that kill list is really fucking dark and tense yes that dream is delightful yes definitely but yeah this this movie deals with a lot of the fear that i mentioned a second ago in our little icebreaker was just you know that family drama 
It's just fear of lack of stability. It's fear of financial issues. It's fear of, like, what your spouse thinks of you. It's fear of what your friends think of you. Um, It's just fear of all that, like, falling apart. Yeah, like, drifting away from your spouse. Yeah. Just kind of going through the motions. Spousal drama is definitely a thing. They have a child, and, you know, just that kid experiencing all the strife. And how they're managing the kid, but you have to also think, like, what is that kid dealing with and what he's seeing? And, you know, this movie was filmed in probably 2010, I would imagine. Um, So it was shortly after the U.S. recession in 2008, but that kind of cascaded and hit a lot of the rest of the world as well. Um, And that's in the background of this movie. They kind of explicitly mention it in one conversation. So there's always, like, that in the background as well, and just lots of paranoia. So this movie is definitely a prime candidate when it comes to, like, hitting a lot of our real-world fears and not our more abstract fears. Yeah, and so I've mentioned a couple times now uh, just, like, how dark this movie intense it is. I would say out of all the movies we watched so far that this one I walked away from not creeped out like some of the others, but more just not feeling good about things. And it's a testament to the uh, to the uh, actors especially because, I mean, God, those... And we'll get into it when we go scene by scene, but, like, those moments where, like, there's family drama, the, the dinner together yeah. with when he invites his friend over and his, his friend brings his girlfriend, like... That stuff is so much more unsettling and uncomfortable than, like, any yes. of the actual horror elements horror, of this yes. movie. Yeah, like, I felt more uncomfortable during those scenes than the horror-related scenes towards the end of the movie. Like, those scenes were, like, just so cringeworthy, but I couldn't stop watching, but at the same time, I just... I felt so awkward about it, and, I, and like, I had to stop myself and be like calm down this is just a movie you don't know these people and the people on screen are just acting yeah they did such a good job of just capturing that family dynamic of a family that's kind of going through a lot of turmoil and i didn't know that the actors improvised a good bit of this movie but that makes so much more sense now this is one of those things where i really appreciate in movies when the director the producers just the whole team specifically puts aside time for the actors to get together and spend time with each other and actually get to know each other and get to kind of work and improvise and figure things out together as a team and then go film. If you have that rehearsal time built in where everybody can kind of get to know each other, things become more natural because you have more of a shorthand between those actors and how they communicate and how they talk to each other and how they like act around each other. It makes everything so much more naturalistic. And whenever you have those kinds of movies where you feel that level of connection, you look up the details and usually you find out that that team spent time together beforehand um, rehearsing. So this this movie definitely has that. And this preparation for acting is the type of preparation I... I do appreciate, like, like I know I've mentioned in the past how much it drives me up a wall, like, when I read stories of how the actors prepared for their roles for Suicide Squad, and you had Jared Leto just acting like a total idiot on method acting. set. Yeah, method acting, and then you had, I forget the actress's name, but the one who played Enchantress claiming she, like, ran out in the middle of the woods in the middle of the night naked, howling at the moon. That's not, a- that's not how you prepare for a role, like... 
Yeah. This, if you wanted to get a little bit more method with it, kind of more off the cuff, this is the way I appreciate it. Like, develop your character's backstory, all that, but you don't need to do all that other bullshit of, like, dropping a dead animal on in front of the director like Jared Leto apparently did to prepare as the Joker. No, develop a backstory, get together with the other actors, and start improvising. Like, that's what I appreciate, not that other crap. Yeah, I think... The form of method acting that I can get behind to a degree is a profession where you stop what you're doing, you go learn that profession for a while, and at least become like proficient enough at it to look believable on screen. That's fine. Yeah, I do like that too. Yeah, like let's say you're training for an action movie and you want to look believable. You know, you want to have some trigger discipline and just basic like I know how to handle a gun and not look like a moron. Okay, cool. Go hang out with some guys that know what they're doing, learn the basics, get proficient, and you're fine. But pulling like a Daniel Day-Lewis where you halt your life for two years to go live in Italy and be a cobbler, you know, like that's the kind of bullshit where I'm just like, yeah, I don't know, like like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. Like De Niro going and legit being a cab driver in New York for like six months preparing for taxi drivers, maybe a bit I, much. That I'm on more on the post about, like on the fence about. Like that one, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. That's more reasonable, <laughs> it's but it's of... still kind of like, okay, you could have maybe done that for like a week, I think, and gotten the same experience yeah, out of it. Yeah. But, you know, okay. But yeah, like just be crazy inhabit this character 24-7. I don't know. Like, I don't know how I feel about that. I think it depends on the actor. I think it depends on the performance. But the majority of the time when you hear about that kind of thing, it just sounds like it was a handful to work with that individual. So, I don't know. Yeah, like, I, I do like reading about actors who, like, are taking an action role and they'll do, like, go do competitive shooting for, like, a week or two or, like, go to the range and learn how to quick draw from a shooting specialist. Um, I know Keanu Reeves has done quite a bit of, com- like, work in, with competitive yeah. shooting, um, and that makes a shit ton of sense with all the movies he's been in and continues to be in, thinking of John Wick. I think that the actors getting together like they did to improvise, it does feel like they know each other. There were no moments in this movie where I was like, they kind of don't know what they're doing on screen. Like, they've all gelled pretty well together. They kind of all let each other say, like, be their characters, and and they didn't get in each other's ways. Um, They all just kind of built on the same same premise. Yeah, but I think the difference is they all hung out as people beforehand and got to know each other, but the two main guys didn't pull up man bites dog and like went and hung out with a a hitman you know they didn't like go hang out with a contract killer for two months to see how the job is done there is a good rapport between the actors that makes things more naturalistic but at the same time they didn't like stop production for a year to go learn what it's like to be contract killers so i had no idea that that was involved in man bites dog but i can't say i'm that surprised um, it's not. It's actually these guys who are doing kind of a cinema verite documentary thing where they're just like watching people and they happen upon this guy who's a serial killer. And so they just kind of follow him around throughout the course of his day recording him. So that's, yeah, that's that movie. But it's kind of the same idea. I know the premise of the of the movie. I thought just like to get ready for the role in the movie, they actually followed around oh, like a no, real no, no. contract killer. I was like, holy shit, what the hell? I didn't know that. No, that's the premise of the movie itself. I meant like so. 
pre-production like they the director or yeah, no, the stars be, like that'd be fucking wild <laughs> that'd be fucking insane all right well speaking of premises the basic gist of this movie is pretty simple um we have our two main characters jay and gal and they are former soldiers who have become hitmen since they left the military gal is like fairly calm and collected and easy jay is definitely the more unhinged of the two he's kind of at his wits end because there was a disastrous mission in kiev that they mention here and there we don't know the specifics but that kind of set him back for a few months where he wanted to take a break from everything but now his money's run out and so his family's kind of at the end of their rope so the two of them take this new job just to kind of get back into things and get their lives going and that's things kind of go from there and get weird so the movie actually starts with Jay and his wife, Shell, arguing. It just immediately starts with them just yep. kind of <laughs> screaming at each other about money. He went to the grocery store and basically just got a bunch of bullshit. He just bought like 10 cans of tuna and a bunch of bottles of wine and didn't get the other half of the stuff that was on the list. And it's just the two of them kind of arguing back and forth about money and what they're spending. But through the course of this argument, you find out a lot of key things. You find out that he's not been taking jobs for the last eight months and that he's just been kind of laid up. He's definitely a fucking sad sack. He is just kind of a piece of shit. He's kind of lazy. He's definitely kind of selfish. He's got a wife and kid, but he's just constantly, like, shirking responsibility in various ways. And it's just mundane things, like she's yelling at him about not buying toilet paper, even though it was on the list. Just stuff like that. But that's, like, a hell of a way to start this movie immediately. Because, I mean, they're both awful. They're both bad to each other. But especially Jay. Like, Jay's just, you know, again, he strikes me as the sort of person that he's, like, never learned to live on his own. Because he's either had his wife um, or the military to kind of fall back on. I mean, that's kind of the thing. Like, for all of her complaints, what does she do? Yeah. You know, because it also never makes clear, like, what she does. Because she's also former military. You know, so, I mean, they're both just kind of awful. <laughs> yeah. Jay, you can tell, is dealing with some shit, but he's doing a terrible job yeah. of coping. There's dealing with depression or PTSD or whatever he is having at the start of this film due to whatever mission that was. But instead of actually like seeking help or work trying to work at it, genuinely earnestly work at getting better, he he really is kind of just more leaning into being a sloth. But then yeah, at the same time like you you were saying his wife wasn't really being very understanding either, more worried about the finances than maybe his mental state, which is more treating the symptoms rather than treating the problem because yeah. if you help with him getting into a better mental state, then he can work at getting the money. This movie, I don't think, is very particularly scary for people who are more reluctant with horror movies. It's more just dread. Like, it is just, there is dread throughout this movie. For most of the movie, it's mundane dread, like this, family life going poorly. The parts that do get scary towards the end, they are actually pretty scary. There, there are a couple jump scares towards the end of the movie. I think, honestly, the hardest part of getting through this movie is, like, watching these two fight. That was probably the hardest part to get through for me. Yeah, and it's it's very much in that abusive relationship kind of way where they'll fight and fight and fight, and then all of a sudden they'll come down from that, and they'll be, like, super lovey-dovey, and then they just kind of start that cycle, and it's that constantly... You know, that's kind of where things go now. Like, you see them fight and you see them argue. She was yelling at him about not getting half the stuff on the list, but he comes home with, like, some foam swords for their son. As she's yelling, like, you know, he's got enough toys, why'd you spend money on these, blah, blah, blah. He's just kind of ignoring her and gives the swords to their son and... 
kind of then cuts to them outside, all three playing together, and they're, at this point, now they're smiling, they're happy, they've gotten past whatever their argument is. You know, we see Shell with their son Sam on her back, and they're, like, sword fighting together, and there's some voiceover of them saying that they're sorry. But then there's, like, another scene where, like, he's downstairs, and he hears her crying, and he, like, kind of looks up the stairs, and then it cuts to her, like, on the phone with her mom, and she is Swedish, so she's, like, talking to her mom in Swedish, but you can basically tell you could tell from the tone that she's still upset yeah. yeah she's still upset she's crying and like she's telling her mom like jay and i are having fights again whatever blah 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 um it is interesting to note too that jay is the more unhinged one yet he's the one that has the normal quote-unquote normal family life and then gail is the laid-back one who is still single still like fucking around but again he is the one that's more mentally stable yeah He's more mature, I think. He's just older, more mature. Like, he's just more, yeah, like, settled. So, during their first argument, we basically find out that they are buying stuff for a dinner that they're having later that night. Because he comes home with, like, ten bottles of wine, and they joke about, like, Jesus, like, it's just the four of us. How much do you think we're going to drink? He's like, I don't know, like, I don't don't know. (laughs) (laughs) As they're getting ready for the dinner, Sam is running around the house, their son... Jay's shaving, and Sam walks in and just looks at him for a moment, and then just slaps the shit out of him, like, right on his love handle. Dad bod. (laughs) Yeah, which Jay immediately, like, nicks himself. They have Gal and his current girlfriend, Fiona, over. You forgot about the scene where he put puts him to bed, and Jay, like, tell him a, a, a story, a, a bedtime story, and Jay starts kind of cryptically going into, like, a mission that he went on and how it yeah. went fucked. And I wrote down, oh, good story, Dad. Yeah, because the story was just like, there's these two knights, and, you know, they're in the kingdom of Baghdadistad, and they're having to protect this carriage, and there's another carriage with a bomb, and you're just like, oh god, you're literally just, like, retelling one of your, like, stories of when you were in the Iraq War. Yep. (laughs) Anyway, they're having this, uh, dinner, which was organized by Shell. Jay is definitely not having it. He's not into this whole idea of this dinner, because he knows... He knows the reason behind it. Shell invited Gal over specifically to, like, pitch him on the idea of a job, essentially, because, you know, he's not been working, they're running out of money. So he knows that that's the purpose. You know, it's not just like a friendly hangout kind of thing. So during the evening, they're all hanging out. They're all talking. Eventually, Gal does pitch him on the job as they're kind of hanging out in the backyard. As they're talking around dinner, Jay and Gal are kind of purposely being a little bit cagey about what their actual profession is around Fiona, Gal's girlfriend that he brought. She asks them what they do, like, oh yes, sales must be hard. And they kind of give her some vague bullshit about being salesmen and everything else. They ask her what she does, and she also is just kind of like giving them a generic answer, like, she's boring, essentially. She's just in, like, human resources. And they kind of poke fun at her that, like, oh yeah, you're the one that fires people, and that's gotta be a fun job. And she's just like, well, I mean, it's part of the fucking process, and like... Someone has to do it. Yeah, yeah, it's the business world and like it's got to be done you know so it's interesting because like gal brought her and you can tell that like they haven't been together but like maybe once or twice but it's just kind of weird how they're like 
immediately kind of poking fun at this woman and giving her shit and they don't really like even know her you know so it's just kind of a weird dynamic that's already making things a bit uncomfortable and then you start to have tension between jay and shell as they're sniping at each other from across the table about all kinds of stupid little things like why did she put the gravy in a pyrex container instead of in a proper gravy dish that's just such a stupid prick thing to complain about but it's just one of those weird examples of like the improvised dialogue bringing some realism to the film and i love his response he's just like you put the gravy in the fucking pyrex i feel like i'm eating out of a fucking chemistry set (laughs) (laughs) and then she's like yeah and then to her credit i actually don't know the actor and actress's names that well but the actress who plays shell she like kind of gives them that look a wife would give to a husband after making a shitty comment like that yeah and then she kind of just storms off and grabs the gravy if this was all improvised it was fucking great this whole dinner like when fiona and gal show up the tension and the awkwardness just slowly builds and builds and builds and like it starts with a snarky remark here and there either between gallon and jay or jay and shell and it just gets worse and worse from there and again these like these are the toughest scenes for me to get through one thing i do appreciate about this movie is the fact that shell 100 percent is in the know regarding jay and gal's actual profession she knows what's up she knows what's going on she's the one that organized this whole dinner so that a job could be pitched and i like the fact that she's former military so they totally set that up as well that they met because they were both military and the movie doesn't treat her like an idiot regarding what they're actually doing and she's not just in desperate denial like you see that in so many of these movies where the husband is like a killer of some kind whether he's a serial killer or some kind of professional like hitman and the wife is just completely ignorant or just lying to herself the entire movie in just really dumb desperate movie kind of ways but Shell's totally part of this she's the one that organized it she's the one that found out about the job you know she's the one that's been kind of like getting everything together it's flipped too because like jay is the one that doesn't want to do it and is super reluctant to do it and she's just like get off your ass and go murder some fucking people i mean she doesn't say it like that but you know but it's usually the opposite way around where the guy is the one the husband's the one that's like rearing to go and wanting to do another job and the wife is like no baby just no more of this stay home you can't do this anymore it's tearing our family apart so i appreciate that yeah shell has no fucking patience or that shit she wants yeah she wants him to go out and earn some money and stop being a fucking sad sack too yeah i think in one of the scenes around this time there's one point like where she shows a picture to fiona and like she was part of some kind of swedish military operation that was either in afghanistan or iraq probably around the same time that jay and gal were there um whether they were part of the british army or they were more contracted all that stuff is kind of left up in the air but you you get the bit the information you need to know from all of these scenes yeah so finally this whole dinner scene culminates in jay standing up flipping his fucking plate over and she's like all right i'm fucking done eating and tearing off the tablecloth with like an abracadabra kind of move you know and it's just such a massive dick mood to throw the night off so while everybody's kind of cleaning up and you know they're kind of trying to calm the tension down we see fiona go to the restroom and while she's in the bathroom and there's like some fun kind of music playing in the background she takes the mirror off their wall and turns it around and with like a fucking steak knife carves a weird symbol into the back of the mirror and it's like 
a cross with a triangle peak, kind of like almost like a peace sign, but upside down. And then she just hangs it back up on the wall. And then you kind of see her look around and she picks up the piece of tissue paper that Jay cleaned the blood off of his neck when he nicked himself earlier. And she takes this bloody piece of tissue paper and like stuffs it in her bra and kind of shakes her clothes up and looks in the mirror, gives herself a wink and a nod and then leaves. Yeah, and it's a creepy fucking look that she gives herself in the mirror after like she does like a job well done, but in a really sinister way. Yeah. This symbol that she carves into it, I wrote it's actually... It's a cross between like an anarchy sign and a Blair Witch symbol. And it's funny too, yeah. because um, I, I was reading a little bit about how Ben Wheatley, people had asked him, are you just kind of copying Blair Witch Project? And that was not his intention at all. And I think at one point he was going to have these symbols more hung up around a forest area in one of the later scenes. And I think he specifically decided to opt against that because he didn't want more comparisons to the Blair Witch Project. Yeah, that makes sense. So, and I think he wasn't aware of the Blair Witch Project either, at least the symbol used in the Blair Witch Project until like people brought it up to him after the production. Yeah, so just a little interesting tidbit there. So everybody kind of smooths over the argument and we see him kind of hang out in the backyard a little bit. Jay and Gal kind of get into a fight and... They're drunk and they're just kind of fucking around. But eventually we do see them all kind of pack up and leave. Gal and Fiona hop in a cab and leave. But as they leave, Shell's like, yeah, that was a fairly pleasant, you know, evening. Things went well. And Jay's just like, thank fuck that's over. And so you can tell, like, he's still bitter. Despite the evening getting smoothed over, he's still bitter about everything. And you just kind of see him sitting in their hot tub with his feet dangling and just drinking a beer, just being a bitter asshole. Yep. The next morning, they find a dead rabbit in the backyard and they just assume that the cat killed it and left it. And they kind of argue about it because Jay's like, oh yeah, I'm going to cook it. I'm just going to cook it and eat it. Like, why leave this perfectly fine rabbit out? And Shell's like, fuck you. Don't do that. Don't cook that nasty fucking rabbit in my house. And he's like, whatever. And so then it just kind of cuts to him, like, sitting in the backyard of the plate eating the rabbit. Um, And she kind of mentions, like, yeah, daddy's trying to just prove a point. So it's just more of him, like, being a dick. Jay packs up, drives over to Gal's. We find out that Fiona left him sometime early in the morning or in the middle of the night and just kind of left a letter, like, taped to his dick. She taped a Dear John letter to my cock. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, he's kind of bummed because he's hungover and the woman that he, like, brought over just kind of ditched. And he made a couple mentions, I think, during the dinner party, or at the dinner party, he made a mention, like, when the two of them were, like, in the garage, separate from the the women, like, how he's like, she's a fucking demon in bed. (laughs) Yeah, they, they, like, met at, like, uh, not a jazzercise class, but, like, like, a boxer robe or something like that yeah. but yeah so just in this scene again like you said a second ago gal is just so much more professional and smarter than jay that it's just maddening jay is just like way too naive in a lot of different ways he cuts corners he doesn't always like think through situations so just i don't know a lot of it kind of shows through um, which, by the way, we need to talk about the cast real quick. So, Jay is played by Neil Maskell, and I looked him up, and he's been in a lot of Brit indie movies and TV. The 
only thing that I know him from. And I had to like go back and look up pictures of him because I don't explicitly remember him in this movie, but it was years before this came out. He was in Nil by Mouth uh, for 97, which was written and directed by Gary Oldman. And it stars Ray Winstone, who I love. So that was the main thing that I recognized from him. But he's got a ton of credits. His wife, Shell, is played by Mayanna Burring. And she was actually in The Descent. So she was one of the main women in that. She was in uh, Neil Marshall's Doomsday, which is the same director as The Descent. Um, she was also in Downton Abbey, and she's apparently in this upcoming Witcher show for Netflix. She, that's interesting, because I did see that she also provided a voiceover for one of the Witcher 3 expansions, like for just a random yeah. character there. and it's a different character than the character she's playing in the show. That's I, I had to like, backtrack that and look it up. Gal is a character actor that I fucking love. Um, he's an Irish character actor named Michael Smiley. He was in one of the best episodes of Black Mirror called White Bear. He was also in Wheatley's later movie Free Fire. Um, he had a small part in The Lobster. There's Yorgos Lanthimos again. He was one of the main characters in a field in England, but he just has like such a good face and a good voice for a character actor. So I'm really hoping we'll see more of him in bigger roles and more mainstream things. Yeah, Michael Smiley and Mayanna Burring were my two favorite actors in this movie. Yeah. Bar none. Like, they were, they were my favorite. Oddly enough, though, he is probably, like, my least favorite moment in Star Wars Rogue One. He plays Dr. Evazan. Does he really? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, like... That tiny cameo moment where they're all wandering through Jeddah and they bump into him and Ponda Baba and he's like, watch yourself, I got a death sentence on 12, blah, blah, blah. And it's just kind of one of those like <laughs> cheeky moments that they throw in there. And I was kind of infuriated by that. Like that's that's the one like cheeky cameo that I was not down with. My friend doesn't like you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, he's great. Emma Fryer plays Fiona. Um, she was also just in a bunch of Brit TV stuff. Sam is played by Harry Simpson, which that is basically the cast in a nutshell. So there's not very many more people that are in major roles, if any. The actress who played Fiona I saw also too has done like a ton of stand-up comedy, and I've been curious to like look up her. Really? Yeah, <laughs> I was curious to like look up some of uh, some of her sets. But that's yeah, interesting. She, I think she's. I don't know if she started off as a stand-up comedian or just kind of did that around the same time she started acting. But um, I thought that was pretty funny because she is huh. super creepy in this movie. Yeah. So Gal and Jay kind of get their gear together and they drive to this hotel to meet the client that they're taking the job for. Um, and there's a really great shot as they get to the hotel and they're getting out of the car where there's just this giant rainbow arcing from end to end of the picture. And from what I was reading, there was apparently like a shot planned where they were going to incorporate a rainbow, but because they actually ran into a legitimate real rainbow, they just went ahead and like put it there. Yeah, I, I took note of that scene too. Also too, just kind of backing up for one second. I don't know if we did mention, but Jay, like after the dinner party, he did finally kind of like come around and told uh shell i'm gonna i'm gonna take the job basically yeah and then he went to go meet jay which is when jay told him that fiona left him so yeah they now they're going to meet this employer yeah so they get to the hotel and they go to the room where they're going to meet kind of this shadow client person and it's just this like really unassuming kind of creepy looking older white guy 
he's got a list of three people that he wants killed. And as they're kind of sitting and negotiating all this, he just kind of grabs Jay's hand all of a sudden and just cuts the shit out of Jay's hand and squeezes it to kind of bleed all over a piece of paper. And then he cuts his own hand and just kind of rubs the blood together, essentially just making a blood contract. And this really throws the two of them off. Gal immediately, like, pulls his gun and is like, what the fuck? And Jay's just sitting there, like, kind of yelling, you know, what the fuck, you just cut my hand open, goddammit. You know, like, he's he's very not happy about the situation. They're both just kind of like, okay, what did we just step into? And the guy that hire, is, is hiring them is just very, like, calm and just whatever about the whole thing. And he does specifically mention the botched Kiev job we've kind of heard mentioned before. And um, Gal says this specifically, but the guy brings it up as a point of making sure that he knows about it. And he's letting them know that he knows about this botched job. So after that, we see them kind of cleaning up and talking about how they feel about the job. And they're in the bathroom while Jay is washing off his hand and wrapping it up. And I just love dumb shit like Gal snagging the hotel shampoos. Um, he's just like looking at him like over the sink. He's like, oh, yeah, this <laughs> yeah. guy's, I'm just going to take these. like, yeah, fucking take it. The mundane manner like that they like prep for this job is just like so contrary to what we normally see. Because in any other movie, it would just be like racking guns, laying guns on a bed, putting on leather jackets, zipping things up. Like it would just be way more action-y than this. And it's just fucking like ironing their shirts. Yeah, and, and in fact, after they meet this client, like, there is a bit of reluctance from kind of both of them about that was fucking weird, and then, like, I yeah. think Jay was just like, oh, it was just the clients being theatrical with this blood contract shit. Yeah, it, like you were saying, it bucks all those tropes of just, like, we're gonna have a montage of them putting on their Kevlar and loading up all their guns, and it's more of just, like, these two guys, like, these two retired soldiers, both of them not in the best shape, like, they both kind of have dad bods. Yeah. Cleaning themselves up after that, and, like, kind of shaken by that and at one point one of them is like how the fuck did he know about kiev and yeah i liked these scenes as well them kind of getting ready to take on these jobs yeah so do you see them arrive at the first town or village you can assume where the first name is um and they check into this hotel and gal's kind of flirting with the woman at the front desk a little bit jay swipes his card and the cards declined and this the, again these are the kind of things that i like that like shells involved in this operation kind of on the back end because you know she's the one organizing all this so he calls her and is just like what the fuck why is there no money on this card did they not pay us did you not move the money over that's a real fear it's like going to swipe your your card and your card just declined for a hotel or a plane that you have to catch or something like that and, and no matter how like the person taking your card reacts like they could be totally polite and understanding you still are going to feel it's always a bad feeling yeah yeah you're gonna feel so embarrassed like so put on the spot. So kind of cut to them eating dinner in the hotel's dining room. And there's kind of a funny scene where they're sitting there trying to eat their dinner. And there's this group of people behind them who are some kind of new age, hippie, Christian-y, AA kind of group. They're all drinking orange juice and they're all like pat each other on the back about things. The main guy that's kind of leading this group is the actor who plays Dolores Ed on Game of Thrones. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's great. <laughs> and I definitely would not have recognized him when I first saw this movie, you know, because I hadn't seen, or at least he wasn't prominent in Game of Thrones yet when I saw this movie. But at one point he like breaks out an acoustic guitar and they all start singing really poorly. And I love that moment where Jay gets up and is just like, fuck this, takes a guitar from him and is like, look, fuck this, stop playing this goddamn guitar, this is not a 
place and time for you to like sing your dumb songs and just like throws it on the ground and storms out because the whole time he's just like oh god I'm gonna eat this knife I just want to like shoot myself in the head like I hate this this is awful and he finally just gets up and loses it and you know Gal has to kind of follow him out I was like all right sorry and Gal's cracking up too Yeah, he's like, all right, sorry, you know, whatever, like, he, like, tells the waitress as he's walking, it's like, yeah, love, get them double rounds on us, double orange juices. Yeah. You just see them, like, kind of laughing as they get into the the elevator. I did write, this is what my subconscious wishes it could have done those couple times in college, like, when you're either having a get-together or, like, even a small party, and there's that one fucking asshole that has to bust out his acoustic guitar thinking he's, he's the best, and come on, dude, there's a time and a place. Yeah, so they go to get their first target, who ends up being a priest. Um, They kind of have a little bit of a dossier on them to begin with. Before you get in all this, too, I was curious. Do you know this Jim Williams who did the soundtrack to this movie at, at all? No, but I honestly didn't look him up. Has he done something else specific? I didn't really look into it. I, I can't find anything really on Wikipedia. It just lists his name as music by. But I will say the soundtrack of this movie, the one thing that really kind of still kept me kept me aware that this is still technically a horror movie because and i'm not this is not against the movie the movie is still very engaging and very intense and dark and sinister throughout but one of the things that really helps keep your mind on that even during these more mundane scenes is the soundtrack because the soundtrack is very haunting um there is kind of this undertone of a, a whistle like a certain whistling tone that kind of almost reminded me of what's her face from kill bill when she dresses up as the nurse yeah it's kind of like a really sinister kind of whistling sound like that this is kind of where i felt uh, a little bit lovecraftian during all these mundane scenes was was from the soundtrack so their first targets a priest and the scene is fairly straightforward um i mean you see them arrive at the church they're in the middle of mass so this priest is actively giving mass while they're sneaking into the back and they're prepping his office and they're putting up plastic all over the place and just kind of waiting for him to arrive so the priest comes in he immediately knows something's up because there's plastic all over his office and he turns around and sees jay standing there kind of hidden behind some robes and he knows what's up but he just has a weird unsettling smile on his face and he just says thank you And then Jay tells him, like, turn around. He turns around and just, boom. Jay puts a bullet in his head, and he falls, and that's that. And it just kind of hard cuts to them chucking his body out of a two-story window, wrapped in plastic, and you just see it smack into a dumpster and fall to the ground, and them loading him up. We've always discussed gore in movies and in, in, in the horror movies we've seen so far. Again, this this is more along almost like the lines of maybe even like Texas Chainsaw, where it's super realistic but not extremely gory. At least in this scene, later on, in, the gore does get amplified. But in this scene in particular, no, it just it really did feel like I was watching like these two guys just pop a priest in the head it wasn't like the freaking body horror that of scanners it was more just like no this is what happens when you shoot somebody in the fucking head um and there is something unnerving about that and (laughs) this movie definitely capitalizes on that more in the next upcoming target yeah there's a little bit of ambivalence around this first kill, at least from Gal. He is religious. You kind of pick that up over the course of the movie. But Jay just kind of shakes it off. as like, eh, maybe he, like, buggered some kids or something. Like, he probably has it coming. Don't worry about it. But obviously, like, the priest's reaction is 
very much the opposite of what you would expect considering yeah they pack up we see them arrive in a different town and a different hotel for the next hit we see jay skyping with shell and shell mentions that fiona came by to hang out um so they're kind of getting close and she actually like brought a gift for sam uh, which jay kind of felt was odd but they basically say they love each other good night and you see them shut the laptop their second target is a librarian and one thing i do like is that for each of these hits there's just like a giant title card with big bold white lettering of like who that person is so this is the librarian and they're looking over the dossier and they're commenting on how he just looks like a really normal dude and he lives in a normal house and like yeah well none of these super villains live in like super villain layers for all we know he could have done this this and this you know so they tail him and they're keeping an eye on him just to kind of see his habits but eventually they see him go into this big storage facility and they wait outside and eventually he comes out and locks the big sliding door gal is like okay let's keep following jay says no like we're gonna go look in that storage unit first and kind of see what's up and he kind of insists on this and gal's you know not 100 percent behind the idea but goes along anyway once they enter the storage facility there's just a bunch of shipping containers that are in there and one of the shipping containers has been turned into like a weird office there's like shelving and boxes and just lots of junk and tech stuff laying around and there's just a computer set up all the way at the end of the shipping container and gal sits down flicks on the computer and there's a video on the computer of just something horrific because he immediately is just like whoa fuck uh uh-uh, fuck this turns the computer off yeah you can hear like a woman screaming and like you only see the back of the computer and you see his reaction you don't see what's on the screen and there was something even like that made it even worse to me like it made it just kind of even more horrifying yeah because your mind just runs wild i mean it was either child porn or it was a snuff movie it was something bad but it immediately made a hitman be like whoa fuck this and like turn the computer off yeah it it made me think that the like they wandered into like the toy box killer basically and like they just finally realized like oh this guy is like the toy box killer so jay also is in like curious so he sits down he looks at the video and he kind of sits there and watches it a little bit longer and just soaks it in and is just like fuck it fuck this guy fuck this guy like we're gonna find him he's gonna pay like fuck this guy specifically so they confront the librarian at his home jay is just whole hog beating the shit out of this guy putting cigarettes out on him just torturing him to find out more information around what was that video who made that video what is the deal with this how are you involved in all of it so while he's getting all this information gal starts searching the rest of the house and while he's upstairs he finds a safe so he cracks a safe open and the safe is like full of money and there's just this big accordion folder full of documents just all kinds of stuff and he's kind of digging through all of that meanwhile jay is downstairs torturing and beating the shit out of this guy but once gal is out of the room and upstairs the librarian's mood immediately changes and all of a sudden instead of just being like oh my god stop uh you can't do this uh his mood immediately changes and he also is just like thank you. I'm so happy to have been able to meet you before all this. And Jay's just like, the fuck are you talking about? What? Yeah, he's like, I, I understand why you have to do this and thank you. Yeah. Oh, also too, when, when uh, Gal was upstairs looking at that accordion folder, for a split second, either when he opens it or closes it, 
you see that same symbol that um, Fiona had carved in the back of their window yeah. or their mirror at the dinner party. So, yeah, you're starting to figure out. There's like, more going on. There's more job, going yeah. on, yeah. So Jay digs around in a tool bag and pulls out a hammer and starts beating the shit out of this guy's hand and like cracking his hand open. And this is where it gets kind of graphic. Like there was a moment where you see his hand split open and I was just like, yeah. And it's like, again, it's realistic, but this is where like the brutality like gets kicked to 11 and it is, it's a little crazy. So even as this guy's getting beaten, he's still being really cryptic and weird and saying like, thank you. And that's just like further making Jay like more infuriated, more you know aggressive so he's literally like beating this guy's head in when gal comes down the stairs and gal's just like whoa 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 what the fuck are you doing so the two of them just kind of argue about the mess that jay's made and gal just kind of tells him fuck this this is your mess clean it up i just found enough money in the safe to cover what we would be getting from this job fuck it like we could quit this job like let's talk about it but like to fix this Jay kind of insists on, like, okay, cool, yeah, whatever, but we have to track down, like, the guy that he just told me, and we gotta, like, go to this address, because the librarian did finally tell him, like, a little bit about, oh yeah, the guy that made the video lives here. Jay insists on, like, going and finding these other guys and just bringing some street justice to them. They go to the address mentioned by the librarian, and Jay just kind of says, all right, look, I'm going to go in and check things out. If I'm not back in 20 minutes, come after me. And Gal knows this is not a fucking good idea, goddammit. But he just kind of goes along with it. So you see Gal just kind of waiting in the car. He starts to get impatient. Finally, he just leaves the car to go after Jay and find out what's going on. And he pulls out his gun as well. It's inferred that maybe the 20 minutes has passed and and he's still not back. So, like, he's not sure what he's about to walk into. Yeah. So he kind of sneaks his way into this weird alley and goes kind of through these shipping containers in this building. And eventually he finds a dead dog and a dead guy and is just like, God damn it. All right. So where's this going? So he kind of makes his way through the building and you kind of hear this light, just kind of repetitive smacking sound. And eventually he comes around the corner and sees Jay just slam this dude's head into a concrete wall over and over and over this guy's head is just pulp at this point and jay is just again like clearly he is getting emotional and he's getting sloppy and he is just like losing his fucking grip in terms of his like professionalism and gal is just getting fed up with his fucking behavior so they drive out to the edge of town they burn these extra bodies in the woods outside of town and just like a big pile of trash and then they go back to the hotel that they were staying at so a couple things i wanted to touch on when these scenes um first off the scene where gal goes in to look for jay like into the shipping containers and eventually into the building this was the first scene that really felt like a hor- like a horror movie it was kind of filled with those tropes of you're expecting something to jump out there's like the slow dreadful build um there's like this weird whining noise you hear at one point and he like slowly wanders into a room and it's a teapot kettle going off yeah and like he turns it off and he's slowly going through more and more of the rooms and the rooms are really like weirdly lit there's a little bit of the gore between the dead body he discovers and the the body of the dog and then that's when he discovers jay it almost like instinctually i, I felt like this is what i was waiting for something really fucked up to happen yeah. but another thing i want to touch on is when they're burning the bodies at one point they're staring at the fire and they're kind of making a little bit of small talk and jay starts mentioning he says like this line you know 
as a little boy, I always used to love looking at the fire. Gal kind of looks at him like, this isn't something you've ever told me about. I don't know if I read too much into that line and into the scene in general. I don't know if I read into it in that maybe the scene was just trying to confer that Jay is slowly losing his mind and Gal's kind of maybe a little bit worried about him. That's kind of how I took it. Yeah, or if there was something to Jay's past that's kind of left ambiguous, but it makes more sense at the end of the movie. Yeah. But I'll bring that up again when we get to the end. Once they get back to the hotel, we have another odd dream logic kind of moment where Jay is just kind of staring out the window. Like, he's just dazed, and he's out of it, and there's several stories up in this high-rise hotel, and he's staring out, and you see all the way down, you know, at the ground level, way across, past the parking lot, past, like, two or three streets down, there's a woman in a white dress waving up at him. And he kind of sees this woman, but she's too far away for him to make it out. But then it cuts to a close-up of the woman, and it's Fiona. And she's looking up at him, waving, like, very on purpose and knowingly. And the movie doesn't really attempt to, like, clarify whether or not this scene is real, or it's just Jay kind of losing his grip on reality a little bit. But it's just, like, one of those odd, what-the-fuck-am-I-looking-at kind of moments. Yeah, and and Jay is kind of standing there on the hotel balcony, like, in his towel. He kind of, like, looks like, what the fuck? And then, like, slowly does, like, you know how when someone is waving in your direction, but they're kind of far away, and there's other people around you, and you don't know if they're waving at you or just waving at something else or someone else, but you still kind of, like, reluctantly put up your hand in that awkward, like, wave back. That's kind of what happens in this scene. I like to think with what else happens in this movie that maybe this was literal, and it's just one of those creepy, weird fucking things that can happen literally. But, yeah, no, it it is very nightmare dream logic. So they decide after how badly the last hit went that they kind of need to take a break real quick. So Jay returns home, open the front door, and Fiona happens to be visiting. And there's kind of this awkward moment after, you know, the moment we just saw in the hotel. So when he cut his hand earlier, his hands become infected. Like, it looks super bad. Shell insists that he goes and sees a doctor. So while he's at the doctor, you find out that his regular doctor isn't there. So he sees another doctor, and it's another just kind of weird old man who is just giving him some fucking, like, cryptic advice. He even says, like, I'm here for my hand. Why are you asking me about my home life and my love life and, like, all this other stuff? Like, my hand's clearly the problem. It's infected. And he's just like, no, you're fine. But, you know, blah, 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 cryptic bullshit. And it's just a really weird, like, unsettling scene to go to the doctor and the doctor's just, like, (laughs) dropping weird cryptic nonsense on you. Yeah, because he starts off as, like, how's your stress level? Yeah, weird cryptic advice nonsense. We then have kind of a cross-cut scene where Jay is back at home and he's hanging out with his family and it's cross-cutting to Gal who's actually sorting through all the different files that they took from the librarian's safe. He finds a folder on himself and Jay and there's photos of them on the job like it's them sitting in the car surveilling you know one of the targets so somebody has been tailing them and taking photos of them while they're on this job there's even a folder that just in big bold letters says kiev on it yeah yeah as he's kind of flipping through everything like you mentioned earlier there is a file that has that weird symbol written on it and he just kind of tosses it in the pile not thinking anything about it we then cut to jay and shell's house 
kind of like earlier where we cut to the backyard, there's the dead rabbit. Well, they walk out the front door and the family's cat has been killed. And it's been strung up like on the front porch. Um, So it's hanging from a cord and it has plastic wrapped around its head and it's kind of tied up with wire. And they're both kind of surprised and fucked up about it all said and done because it's just such a like weird, mean, out of nowhere thing to do. Yeah, I wasn't very happy about this scene because another horror movie, another dead cat. Yeah. Leave the cats, leave the kitties alone. It just anytime somebody has a pet killed, you're always just like, God damn it. So Gal arrives while they're dealing with this cat situation. They basically go into the garage to get away from the rest of the family and they just kind of fight a little bit you know just you know gals digging into him about his ridiculous behavior and how he's being unprofessional and just how extreme he's being and you know how they're gonna lose the job blah 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 gal you know also tells jay about the documents that he took from the librarian's safe and at that point they kind of decide like all right fuck it this isn't working out between us your behavior is ridiculous. Like, we we had enough money that we took from that safe that we can say fuck it and we can just, like, ditch this contract. Yeah. And people are obviously, like, fucking with yeah. us over the these jobs because they kind of, like, between the files, having photos of them on job and then, like, the cat, they take it as, like, a symbol of, like, you know, leave this the fuck alone. So yeah. they're like, yeah, all right, you win. We're getting out, out of this. So... They go back to the hotel from earlier where they met the client, and this time there are more kind of random, nondescript, shadowy guys sitting around this hotel room, all kind of silently sitting in judgment. Jay and Gallic even say, like, yo, we will find replacements for this job. We even have people that kind of look like us. They'll finish the last name on this list if that's the issue. And the client basically just says, like, no, you can't break it. Um, you know, this was a blood contract. If you don't, you know, if y'all choose to abandon this contract, then, you know, you're fucked. Your families are fucked. We're going to kill them. Um, You have to complete this. The client even refers to them as cogs in a larger machine because as they're kind of leaving, Jay's like, why are we so important to this? And he just says, you're not. You're just cogs. You know, and this job is, he describes it as reconstruction. And it just seems like a very cold, calculated, corporate kind of response and so that just kind of pisses them off further because it's not like there's some greater justice to be done this is just like a cold calculated business kind of related hit essentially so they're already kind of bitter about why they're killing these people and they want to know and there's something bigger going on with the weird videos in the librarian's storage unit and they just say fuck it this is it. We gotta finish this and be done with it. When they get back to the house, Jay tells all this to Shell, and she basically just says, alright, nope, done. Like, I'm packing our shit, I'm taking Sam, we're going to the family cottage, and we are gonna hang out there while y'all finish this contract, because we're not staying at the house. Like, we're gonna go where we're safe, because y'all clearly have, like, fucked this up, so I'm at least gonna take care of our son and get the fuck out of here. Their final mark is a member of Parliament. The MP. (laughs) Yeah, the MP. And he lives kind of in this big country mansion. They go to scope out the mansion. You see them kind of tromping through this big sewer system. They, They park their car. They kind of go in like a weird sewage inlet and go through all these windy, twisty sewers. And eventually they come out the other side into some woods. And they make their way through the woods. They get to a big clearing where they can see the house. So they're, you know, surveilling the house, trying to scoop it out and figure out how they want to do the job. And then we see them camping that night and just kind of hanging out. 
you know, they argue a little bit more, they fight a little bit more, but eventually, you know, Gal just kind of starts to get a little wistful about his feelings toward Fiona, and he kind of opens up about how, like, he wants to settle down, and he really likes her, and he thinks she might be the one. Yeah, and it's funny, because, like, throughout this movie, Gal keeps bringing up Fiona. He's like, I can't get her out of my head for some reason. Yeah. Ultimately, they camp down for the night, and they kind of have a good final, like, yeah, bro, I'm glad to be with you, bro, I'm glad we're friends, bro. (laughs) Bro grabs, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They wake up in the middle of the night, and they hear, like, singing in the distance, and they're starting to hear the same whistling melody that you've been hearing on the soundtrack to the entire course of the movie, that creepy lullaby. It's real fucking creepy, too, yeah. As they look around, they see light, and they see this, like, really weird procession of people walking through the woods with torches, and they're all kind of chanting, and you hear that whistling melody. It's a lot of older people, half of them are, like, naked completely, and the other half are wearing just kind of underclothing, but they're all wearing these, like, really creepy straw masks. Yeah, very Wicker Man-like. Yeah. (laughs) They're very cultish. When they get close enough where they can see, like, what these people are doing and, like, this procession, I wrote down, between the drums, the creepy chanting and and whistling, and these weird straw masks and all the naked people, I would nope the fuck out. Yeah. Totally. This would be it. Screw the job. I'll come back during the daytime or something and kill the guy. Like, fuck this. I'm not doing this right now. Yeah. They kind of slowly follow them through the woods, kind of keeping a distance, obviously. But eventually the group gets to this big clearing that's prepared for some kind of ceremony. And as they're watching from across like a little pond, they see this young woman brought up to the front and they kind of put her up on a block, put a noose around her neck, and there's kind of a weird wooden pole frame that's almost exactly like the weird symbol that we've been seeing throughout the movie. As they're all chanting, everything kind of comes to a complete silence, and they knock the block out from underneath her, and she hangs. And they all, like, clap. Yeah. Like, it's like a golf clap all around her. And it's interesting, too, because... From what I remember of the scene, it's been about uh, been a few days since I watched this movie. I don't remember the woman being hung as being resistant to this either. Not at all. It seemed like she was like welcoming it, and like she was she like was all about this ritualistic sacrifice and being the sacrifice. Yeah, and matter of fact, I forgot to mention before she gets up onto the block and puts the noose on, she like turns and looks in their direction and waves at them. Yeah. Yep, that's so fucking creepy. (laughs) And as she is twitching and hanging from the noose, Jay is finally just like, fuck this. And he opens fire with his rifle. As soon as he does, it kind of catches the attention of everybody. And the main leader of this procession, who you can maybe assume is the MP that they were there to catch, we don't really know. He just turns around and with a big smile on his face just opens his arms up wide and presents himself and Jay just puts one right in his chest and he's shot. All the rest of the cultists start immediately just like running in their direction and chasing them and just screeching and making like unnatural, weird, creepy noises. So basically from when you see this procession and like see all these cultists... 
from there till the rest of this movie, we're hitting the gas. All these like half naked and fully naked people and these weird fucking creepy straw masks. They all start, like you were saying, they, they were shrieking. The movie on purpose makes it sound inhuman, like demonic shrieks. And they start sprinting at them like both Jay and Gal now are opening fire on everybody. And they're taking them out left and right, but there's so many of them. And they all, one or two of them around them will fall down from a gunshot. They, they're just full blast. Like, we're going to catch these people. There's no words. It's all just shrieking. So, yeah. So, from here, the chase is on. They chase them through the woods. They eventually make it back to the weird sewer complex. And as they're making their way through, it's pitch black. And all you really have is, like, the light of the flashlights. And you just hear the echoing screeching of people. But they kind of get to a weird dead end, and they're not sure where to go. They eventually, like, break through the, like, bricks of one wall where there was a spot that was open when they came in. But now it's all bricked up as they're trying to leave. They get separated for a moment, and eventually Gal is caught off guard by one of the cultists and is just stabbed repeatedly. He eventually pulls a sidearm and blows the guy's head off. Jay finds him, and Gal is disemboweled. Like, his guts are hanging out of him. He knows, like, what's up at this point. He just kind of accepts it and tells Jay, like, all right, you gotta fucking do it, man. You gotta, you gotta kill me. I'm not gonna get better. Like, kill me. Get the fuck out of here. And Jay has to basically perform a mercy killing. From there, you just kind of see Jay, like, emerging from the sewer tunnels. He gets into his car. And then here, it's just, like, boom, boom, boom. Like, lots of, like, really quick cuts. Like, he gets back to the family cottage. In between, actually, like, when he's driving towards the family cottage, there's also a scene where he looks at his hand again, and I think he, like, uses his knife to basically, like, drain his hand. Like, kind of cut it open. Yeah, his, his hand's getting even worse. Yeah, like, drain all the pus and shit out of it also during all those sewer like that sewer chase scene there were a few jump scares there so just get ready like that's the scariest part as far as traditional scary goes like traditional jump scares and horror movie tropes like that's probably the scariest part of this movie it's creepy and ramped up from here on out for the rest of the runtime yeah he gets back to the cottage he tells shell what's going on she's also kind of freaking out a little bit he goes outside when they kind of hear some noise and some shouting and their car's tires have been slashed, and all of a sudden there are these lit torches that start lighting up all around their cottage and leading to, like, a nearby field. He kind of runs off into the distance to, like, find these people, and he's knocked unconscious. And in the cottage, Shell is like, all right, fuck this. She grabs a gun, she arms herself, and there's people that are kind of sneaking in that she's shooting little by little. So they're like sneaking in through windows and sneaking in through doors and you see her kind of take out two or three of them. So again, it's like for this moment, it's good that they established earlier that Shell is like former military because otherwise the scene would have been like a little too tropey. The wife is suddenly like armed badass with a gun taking out bad guys as they come in. It's funny because in these scenes too, like it's it's a brief scene of her like kind of going around the house and taking out these people as they're entering in. But she's more calm about all this shit than Jay is when he was on his jobs. Yeah. She should be the one fucking going out there and killing these people because Jay can't keep his shit together. Yeah. But eventually, yeah, it cuts back to Jay and he's knocked unconscious. So then it cuts to like the next big title card that just says The Hunchback. And Jay wakes up and he's in the middle of a field surrounded by all the cultists. They like strip him down to just his pants 
and they put one of the creepy straw masks on him. And then you see, like, his opponent wander into this ring that they've kind of created. They, like, hand him a knife, and you see the opponent walk in, who's the hunchback. And it's this weird, hobbly, also wearing a mask with, like, a cloak on, just deformed person. And he's also armed with a knife. And so the two of them start fighting. And this hunchback clearly, like, is having some trouble kind of getting around and walking and fighting. And Jay is kind of keeping his distance and keeping on his feet. But eventually, like, this knife fight gets pretty brutal pretty quick. And eventually Jay, like, slashes enough at this, like, screaming weird hunchback thing that he ends up on top of it and just, like, stab, 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 stabbing it. You know, eventually he gets up still like super amped and in the moment the cultists pull the mask off the hunchback and we see that it was shell yeah we can all see where this went <laughs> and they pull the cloak off her back and you see that it was sam strapped to her back like as the hump yeah so shell and again we have no explanation for this but she is like laughing like she is cackling as she's dying and he is just dumbfounded the the movie literally like freeze frames on his face for a hot second as he's watching his wife and son die and he's like realizing like it's all sinking in that he just killed them and she's laughing and we don't know why you don't find out like was she in on this the whole time was this planned or did she just break yeah like, psychologically break because of this but bro like how fucked up does this make the scene all the way at the beginning of this movie where they were like fighting with the foam swords in the backyard <laughs> and she was carrying him on his back on her back yeah, yeah. bro that yeah. is so fucking dark the one image in my head that stuck with me after watching this movie was when it shows her on the ground and like her, she starts laughing as she's dying. That is so dark. That is so fucking creepy because it's either one of two things. It's either she is just at this point psychologically broken as she realized her own husband killed her and her son or which is even creepier. She was in on it the entire time. And like this was all about it. Yeah. And she was willingly participating in this. Yeah, as and all this is happening, the cultists start applauding Jay, and they start removing their masks, and one by one, and you see, like, one of them is Fiona, one of them is the client who hired them, and one of them is, like, the man from the doctor's office. Yeah. And as they're, like, applauding him, a couple of the cultists crown Jay, like, with a crown of... It's like a straw crown, like, their masks. Yeah. But yeah, yeah they, they put this crown on him, and they're all just clapping, and that's basically it. Cut to black, it just shows the symbol again, and yeah. credits roll. Yeah, it's a dark fucking ending to this movie. So, remember at the beginning, as we're sitting around dinner, Fiona is, like, describing her job? And, you know, Jay and Gal were being vague with her about what they do. Even though, like, we know now that she knew exactly what they do, and she was playing them the whole fucking time, yep. because she was being vague about what she actually does. Because even the way that they describe her job is like, she works in HR, and she's the one that sacks people, she's the hatchet man. Oh, hatchet person is the joke. But she, like, even mentions, like, yep, yeah, it's all business, it's what the market requires sometimes, like, it's all about performance, and, you know, if you don't perform, like, we just have to cut those people loose, and blah blah blah. And so, again, that goes back to the weird shit that the guy that hired them said in the hotel when they tried to ditch the contract, where he just says, like, 
this is a reconstruction. We're we're reworking some things. So you get all this like bitten pieces kind of come together in this moment where you realize like this is essentially just some weird cult organization that just like murdered a bunch of the old blood and they're bringing new people in and Jay is like clearly being inducted into this in some fucked up kind of way. But that that kind of leaves me with like the last question which is like what makes Jay so special? Cuz we see like he's kind of a fuck up. Yeah. And there's no there's no clue. Like there's no information given to the audience, you know. And Wheatley and Jump like had no real intentions of clarifying or delving into anything about the cult so like what do you think is going on yeah all this is purposely left ambiguous and i really really appreciate that because it made me think about the movie a lot longer than i normally would have i honestly like this theory i kind of put in my own head i go back to the scene where they're watching the burning bodies and jay kind of stares at the fire and kind of just weirdly says you know i used to love looking at fire as a kid and again, I might just be reading into that way too much. It might just be more symbolizing him like losing his mind. But I almost like wonder if no, he's been kind of tracked his entire life by the, whatever organization this Possibly, is. Possibly, yeah. This cult and they kind of groomed him for this and like maybe he like as a little kid like when he was like four or five when barely remembers much of many details but he remembers some things like maybe he attended certain things that happened that had like burnings like this because like why would he bring that up when they're burning fucking bodies yeah I kind of went that route I kind of went that route of like no he's been tracked his entire life and this is the time now to bring him into the fold I don't even know if they were like the new guard killing the old guard. I almost took it as the people who were on the hit list knew exactly that their time was up and he was coming for them. Well, that's that's kind of what I meant was I think all all the people that they were sent to kill were part of this cult and they just kind of they just do like, OK, look, it's my time. All right, done. Like it's for the good of the organization. Yeah sacrificial sacrifice yeah all three of them could be taken as sacrificial sacrifice and same with the woman who was like hung in that scene out in the field yeah i just i i do like i really kind of do buy into that theory the only thing i'm unsure about still is shell yeah i'm not sure which way i'd rather go it could go either way completely like she was just a victim in all this or if she like totally like sinister wise was sent purposely to be his wife and or get with him or whatever yeah and that's kind of why i peppered all those little clues throughout about her like being involved with what's going on and her organizing everything you don't get any like sinister hints off of her that she's involved ever you never get that feeling but she's definitely like been the one organizing this this whole time for them so either yeah she's just on the bad end of it and didn't realize that she was being played the entire time or she was 100% a part of it the entire time. Yeah, the only thing that pulls that into doubt for me is the scene where the cultists are breaking into the cottage and, and she kills she's, them. she starts killing them off because Jay is nowhere nowhere near at that point. Maybe, hey, maybe she still thought like he was about to come back inside or he was close enough so she still was like, okay, well, let me act my part. I don't know. You could make that argument too. But <laughs> either way, it's still fucked completely fucked if she was part of the cult or if she wasn't either one is just as dark as the other we always talk about fears that these movies bring up and like we were being kind of coy with like more of the existential fears of like you know family and i there was another fear i wanted to bring up but i purposely wanted to wait till the end to bring it up because i didn't want to spoil the movie 
And that is a fear of the powerful elite doing really fucked up things that we don't know about that no one can stop them from doing because they control everything. After watching this, these last few scenes, this movie made me think of Bohemian Grove a whole lot. We don't know how fucked up it is there or not. It might just be just like the old elite power elite of the country just kind of getting together and getting drunk and doing stupid shit. Yeah. It might just be a bunch of politicians and CEOs getting together and having, like, a lot of weird illicit sex with each other. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, it could just be that for all we know. Yeah, it could just be stupid shit. But the one thing we do know is Bohemian Grove is real. There's been enough underground gonzo journalism that has proven that it is real. And I mean, there are screenshots of that weird fucking owl statue that they apparently all worship at. It made me just think, no, there could be, like, people we've met even that are, like, CEOs or just kind of higher ups in whatever companies they're in or politicians or whatever. Totally normal any all the time, but behind your back or in the shadows, they do shit like this. Yeah, and not that there's actually anything supernatural behind it as much as just them creating the ritual and creating the like spookiness to make it mystical and to like give it some kind of air of fear and high weirdness in order to make it sound ridiculous when you have people actually talk about it you know if they got on cnn and talked about bohemian grove and all these like high strangeness terms nobody would believe it so the more fantastical that they make it the more that like it does create a weirdness and a fear but also just makes it asinine if you were to actually talk about it with any like credibility yeah it doesn't help too that some of the people that have legitimately like looked into bohemian grove and things like that are like people like fucking alex jones who like yeah uproot their own arguments because of all their other bullshit that they do but yeah but yeah and, and i mean not to get like all conspiracy theorists there is evidence of like mk ultra and things like that too where like what could stop the one percent of the one percent of america from like doing all these weird fucked up rituals with orphans and things like that and nobody would know about it because they kind of control everything and so that's like another fear that I think this movie kind of not. Uh, I think it's more on it's the surface. Paranoia, it's, yeah, for sure. But it's it's all through this movie. But yeah, it's it's there. I think the fear that this movie more capitalizes on is like you were saying, it's more kind of fear of family, strained marriages, and things like that. But well, that's the story. That's like the thematic fear in a micro sense because we're just following Jay and Shell and gal but in the macro sense it's the larger picture that you're talking about it's that all pervasive paranoia them talking about all these bigger machinations around them it's them talking about the iraq war and how fucked that was and it's them talking about the recession and how fucked that was and it's just all these like bigger picture things where the client during their second meeting when they're trying to ditch the contract is 100 percent right when they ask him like what are we to you and he just says you're nothing you're cogs and it's just part of this bigger machine that you can't recognize it you can't comprehend it and you're just a small piece of this bigger puzzle you know you're a pawn and that is totally like that fear and paranoia in the macro sense coming out in this movie yeah if texas chainsaw it was the fear of others and strangers the dirt person version yeah this is definitely the that same fear but of the elite yeah you know along the same lines a really really solid comic is from image comics it's called the black monday murders and it is really solid 
Brian K. Vaughn writes it, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's actually Hickman. Yes, yes, it's, okay. it's Hickman, it's Hickman. It's following members of all of these big elitist, you know, Illuminati families that we've heard about in conspiracy theories all these years. It's like the Rothschilds, right? And it's just all of them basically vying for power and backstabbing each other. And it's their competition and kind of organizational structure with these other big important families around the world that are involved in this like Illuminati group that controls the market, essentially. And just how like all the market forces and money and all this stuff is this greater chaos magic that they are directly kind of weaving and controlling for their own power, but there is a supernatural element going on in that comic. That comic is really, really solid. I think it's about to end, because it was just meant to be like a short run kind of thing, but the first two volumes are out if anybody wants to check it out, but it's 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 a lot of fun. Yeah, this movie capitalizes on very similar fears of the elite without the supernatural, at least being on the forefront, whereas Black Monday Mur- Murders does the, basically the same thing but the supernatural is there like they enter a blood pact with a uh, mammon the god of a uh, material wealth and money yeah <laughs> and shit like that and they use like the the stock market crash as like a ritual and all this shit yeah it's a great comic so i honestly think that kill list is kind of right in between because there's the ambiguity and it's never made 100% clear of what's going on. So when I say in between, let me, let's me let roll back to the beginning of this episode when I mentioned True Detective. One common complaint, and this is what Heather like does not like about True Detective, and I've heard this complaint from other people, that the show just builds up and builds up and builds up all this supernatural, creepy, high strangeness. All this like Lovecraftian, just kind of subtle terror, and then does nothing with it. And I think that's the entire entire point of that season is that it's set in the south it's set around the weird swampy dirt peopleness of like rural louisiana but it really focuses heavily on the evangelical kind of mindset that like the devil's everywhere the devil's around every corner evil is amongst us blah 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 and we rationalize all these bad things that happen in the world as being like the workings of some devil. You know, it's Satan. There's a larger evil that this is responsible for. And that's the cause of all this badness. When in the end, no, it's not. It's people. People are the, like, cause of all this bad fucked up stuff. These people were killed, and it was this guy who did it. And so there is no hoodoo voodoo going on. There is no, like, devil in the corner. It is always just people. And it's people doing fucked up things because people inherently, like, are flawed. And that was the whole point of that first season of True Detective was just letting the air out of the balloon that, like, there was nothing more going on, there was no conspiracy, there was no, like, greater evil at play. It was just this one fucked up swamp-ass redneck guy that was murdering these people. And then obviously, yeah, like this comic, which is the whole greater conspiracy theory of like the devil is actually like involved in all of it. I feel like Killis is right in between where we are not actually shown anything that is specifically supernatural in this movie. There is no like devil that shows up. There's no greater evil. We don't see anything weird. There is creepy stuff, but you know what I mean? Like there's nothing like specifically supernatural, but at the same time, we don't know that it's not happening. 
the movie is completely ambiguous about it. So I, I, I kind of find that tone to be interesting because it's right in between Gacy and Lovecraft as far as like super real and super surreal. Yeah. So I, I, I really dig that about the tone of this movie and just the creeping dread throughout the entire thing. So yeah, overall, I love it. Super effective. It's a fun movie to show people if they're willing to be a little patient with like the accents and just kind of the mundanity of the first third to half of this movie because the payoff at the end is so intense and ridiculous and it's just such a roller coaster ride. Yeah, I would agree. I think you wrapped it up perfectly with that last bit. Cool, cool. Before we close out, I would like to give a shout out to my little brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Partygator, for our opening and closing music. Um, you can find his stuff at Bandcamp, so definitely check him out and give him a listen. Yeah, and you can follow us on our socials at Watch If You Dare on Twitter and Facebook. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. I've been seeing some more reviews come in here and there on iTunes, so thank you very much for that. Please rate and review us, especially on there. That helps out a whole bunch. Other than that, that's all I got. Eh, I think that's pretty much it. So <laughs> Shout-outs to our, our girl Sally. and uh, Take the piss out of them? Is that how that term is used? <laughs> I think that's how it's used, take the piss. I don't know. Go watch the movie. <laughs> Go watch Kill Us. Don't let people scare you with... The- their talk of evil forces. Just tell them it's all the fault of the elite 1% and just take the piss out of them. There you go. So that's it. See y'all next time. Sally. <laughs>